Good morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 1 this morning. Verses 1 to 13, if you want to make your way there. There's a lot I want to say thanking you for your generosity, for your hospitality, um, just for this opportunity. It's nice to come somewhere where you're welcome, (laughs) at least this week. And if it's one week, I'll take it. Um, But so much more we want to say, maybe during the Sunday school hour, we'll get to to talk about some of that. But uh, I want to get into the book of Mark this morning. I know it's dangerous to to start a sermon, especially your first sermon as a new pastor at a new to us church, though not a new church at all, you know. It's dangerous to start by making some promises, but uh, that's never kept me from doing what I shouldn't do, so I'm going to make some promises this morning. I want to promise you some things concerning Mark 1, 1 to 13. But before I even read the text, let me go ahead and make those promises. I promise you that this passage will not make you a better parent. The kids look disappointed. This passage will not make you a better spouse. I'm not even going to look at Amber. This passage will not make you a better student. Sorry, parents and teachers. Uh, this passage won't make you a better leader. We're all about leadership in the church, right? It's a pretty big deal today. This passage isn't going to make you a better leader. Uh, it's not going to make you a better employer. It's not going to make you a better employee. I could go on I with could some, go on some, some, some more promises, but I'm still pretty certain I can deliver on those negative, on those negative promises, promises, promises I just made. But I do have one, I do have one positive, positive promise. That I think this that I think this deliver. text can deliver. And maybe it's appropriate. Maybe it's appropriate for this morning. This morning. Uh, it's certainly uh, appropriate. It's certainly appropriate. For we've been why we've been last year. So. Last year. So but many of you. But many of you have been last year. So. Last year. So. The bulk of my pastoral ministry in Alaska was not building a building, redesigning a Sunday school curriculum. It was helping people, helping people suffering, through suffering, through disease, through disease, through death, and through death. And it feels like that feels like that's almost all it was. I know this community. I know this community has been through some things recently. Some things recently. Some suffering. Some suffering. I know even some, I know now, even some now are suffering. Are suffering. So my promise, so my promise to you this morning is that if you understand, if you understand and apply this passage, this passage of Scripture, it will make you, it will make you a better sufferer. 
Not who wants to? Not who that. wants to do that? Right. Like who wants to like sign? Who wants up to sign up for that class? Most of us don't even. Most of us don't even want to think about to invite the thought of becoming a better sufferer. Carries the possibility, carries the possibility that, your that your faith might actually be put to the test. Why worry about, Why worry suffering, about better suffering better if you don't plan to suffer, plan to suffer at all? Like Daniel, like Daniel spoke of this morning, Jesus, Jesus has his own agenda. He often doesn't meet our expectations, but wants to reconfigure them to align with his. But did you know the Bible promises trials, tribulation, and persecution for those who are followers of Jesus? And yet James tells us in James chapter 1 to consider it all joy. Right? When you fall into various kinds of temptations or trials... Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Our suffering serves as part of the process to make us complete until Christ returns, to make us like Christ until he returns. So that when he returns, there's something in us that's recognizable to him. I see myself in my people. Suffering is part of that process. So let's look at Mark 1, 1 to 13. Mark's the second of our four Gospels in, in our Bibles. It seems to be second because long ago, some really smart people thought that Mark was like an abridged version of Matthew. So if you don't have time to read Matthew, you read Mark. Now today, some really smart people tell us that, no, that's probably not the case. Mark was probably written first, and then later used as a source by Matthew and Luke. If you're interested in those things, let's have coffee this week. Because I, 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 love, I love those issues. I love to talk about those issues, but it's not for this morning. Mark is kind of neglected. Like, no one ever recommends, you should really read Mark. If they do, it's because it's the shortest gospel. But, you know, John gets a lot of coverage, a lot of press, right? Because it's kind of different, and it's really uh, amazing and beautiful and theological. Luke and Matthew are real popular for different reasons. Mark seems to be a bit neglected. You might get the impression that it was hastily written. It's considerably shorter than Matthew and Luke. You could probably read it through before I'm done with my sermon, and that might be a better use of your time this morning, so, so feel free. It skips from one event to another with almost no transition. It calls Jesus a teacher a lot, but really contains almost none of his teaching. And it ends abruptly on a note of fear, unless it doesn't, and that's another coffee talk we can have. Sometimes Mark does briefly summarize parts of Jesus' story. We'll see that this morning. But most of the time, when Mark has the same story as Matthew and Luke, Matthew or Luke, or Matthew and Luke, Mark's version is longer and more detailed, not abridged at all. 
And we don't know for sure why Mark's gospel is so short. But we do know that it was received by the suffering church. Which is my way of saying that might have a lot to do with why Mark's gospel is so short. While Mark is for all the church at all times, there are some clues that tell us that his audience was primarily Roman Gentile Christians. Roman Gentile followers of Jesus. And they experienced severe persecution under the emperor Nero, when Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fire that burned two-thirds of Rome in, 80, in 64 AD. So imagine that you've been a Christian for years, worshiping quietly and peacefully in a house church. You've been helping the poor, the widow, the orphan, both in your church, both in your assembly, in your gathering, but also those in the community. And now a mad emperor wants to put you to the test. Confess Christ and suffer. Or deny him and walk away. Or imagine you have just pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ, to King Jesus, and you've been baptized only to find out that Nero wants you too. And the question for you is not, where do I find a loophole so that I can wiggle out of this situation? Like, we're really good at that, right? We look for loopholes when we're facing what we call persecution. We look for leverage. We look for power to get out of it. But their question was this, how do I endure? How do I continue? How do I overcome? Even in the face of suffering and persecution. Mark's version of the story of Jesus is going to be a source of strength and encouragement for those who are facing persecution, for those who are having to answer those kinds of questions. When we hear these first 13 verses, I want to hear them in this way. Not as historical curiosity, historical facts that are important to know. But as a source of strength and encouragement to continue to persevere, to overcome in the face of suffering. So let's listen to God's word to us. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, 
the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Would you pray with me? Father, as we read and listen to your word this morning, may your spirit be our teacher and our guide. May each person here today, including me, hear something that they need. Father, use your word to make us afflicted where we're too comfortable and to comfort us where we are afflicted that we might be the ones who overcome, who continue, who persevere. We ask this in the name of your Son, whom you sent on our behalf, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The first eight verses of Mark 1 strengthen the suffering Christian by reminding him that Jesus continues God's plan. Jesus continues God's plan. I was raised in a particular Christian tradition. I won't betray it by naming it. In which, although they wouldn't say it this way, this is how I heard it, and this is how others often hear it. Uh, If you weren't listening carefully, you might come away with the impression that Jesus was not God's even plan B, but more like God's plan like E or F, somewhere down the line, in his attempt to reconcile the men and women he created to himself. I no longer see things that way. I think there's one plan. And Mark takes us back into the Old Testament through a text and through a person. He quotes from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 43 but attributes it all to Isaiah, to connect the ministry of John the Baptist back to the Old Testament textually. He then connects John the Baptist, the person, to the Old Testament by his prophetic role, as indicated by his wardrobe, and by his teaching, by his preaching, by his proclamation. Yet there is something new going on, right? We have the blood of the new covenant. There there is something new going on. But this something new is continuous with God's faithfulness from the very beginning to reconcile that which he's created. Notice that Mark seems to make a distinction between John the Baptist's preaching and John the Baptist's message. This is really interesting. We're told that John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that almost everyone, except from, like, Jesus' neighborhood, 
comes out and joins the party. They join the movement. They are baptized to identify themselves with this movement of repentance of Israel, preparing themselves for the arrival of the Messiah. So he preaches this baptism of repentance. But then Mark says that John's message is that one more powerful is coming who will baptize you with a lot more than just water, but with the Holy Spirit. This is all consistent with the prophetic voices of the Old Testament to those who were listening. There's something new going on, but it's a continuation of God's plan. Right? But there's also discontinuity, right? We have the new covenant. We have, there's new wine. We don't put new wine in old wineskins. The discontinuity is that this greater one who is coming is not just a king. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a priest. He is, as verse 1 tells us, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now in Rome, the emperors were sons of God and were gods themselves. They were ascribed deity. Many think that Mark is maybe not so subtly ascribing deity to Jesus here by using language that would have been familiar to citizens of Rome. There was an inscription about the emperor Octavian from about uh, five or six years before Jesus' birth that referred to the day of Octavian's birth this way. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of good news. That's what Rome said about its emperor. That his birth was the birth of a god, was the beginning of the good news. Jesus the Messiah is so great that John, a prophet, is not worthy. Not even worthy to fulfill a task reserved specifically for Gentile slaves. Right? The Jews had this history of slavery, right? The whole, you know, Exodus, Prince of Egypt, if you like that version better. Right? Really a, a foundational uh, event in their history, in their theology. So, so influential that they, they swore they would never be slaves again. But yet when they found themselves being slaves again, well, we can be slaves, but we will never wash the feet. That's reserved for Gentile slaves. But John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. So what does this mean for those who are suffering? For those who are being tempted to despair? Now, I don't want you to check out because you're thinking, well... We can talk about our nation or whatever, but it's not Rome. It's not. Uh, don't think it is. It's nothing like Rome. And uh, we don't really get that kind of persecution, so how does this all relate to me? We'll, we'll get there, all right? So hang in there.
But what does this mean for those who are suffering, for those who are tempted to despair, for those tempted to believe that their allegiance to Jesus was misplaced or just not worth dying for? First, it's this. Know that the God you serve, the God you worship, the God to whom you've sworn allegiance is not limited by history. Okay? He's not limited by history. Neither Israel nor her enemies could ever destroy God's plan as hard as they tried. Neither can Nero. So the God we serve and worship is not limited by history. Second, Notice this, while the path of Jesus was made straight by John the Baptist, where did that path lead? The path led to the cross. Throughout the New Testament, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die. It's a call to take up your cross. It's a a call to lose your own life in order to save it. This only shocks us because it doesn't preach well. It isn't marketable. You'll never see a VBS curriculum. You know, take up your cross. Die daily. It's not crafty. So we ignore it. There's much more here, but I, I want to move on. Notice that the gospel, I'll just mention this in passing. Maybe this should have been the whole thing. Notice the gospel doesn't begin with the cross. Right? When Mark says the beginning of the gospel, he's not saying the beginning of a gospel as a type of literature. It's the beginning of the gospel, and he doesn't start at the cross. He doesn't start by quoting Romans. The life of Jesus matters. The life of Jesus is part and parcel of the gospel. And we can explore that later. So Jesus continues God's plan. The second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus connects to God's people. In verse 9, Jesus comes to John from Nazareth in Galilee. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Jesus is the only one who comes. Jesus just shows up. And we get none of the dialogue we get in Matthew's version. And really what I want to do as I preach through Mark is let Mark speak for itself, for himself, for itself as much as I can. I remember in seminary they warned us, avoid gospel stew, right? Which you take a little Mark, a little Matthew, a little Luke, a little John, mix it all together. We're not going to do that. Or not much. I mean, a little stew is pretty good. Jesus just shows up. And he's baptized by John in the Jordan. And as soon as he comes out of the water, these events happen one after the other. The heavens are torn open. The Spirit descends upon him. And this voice, who's God the Father, proclaims, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
a good question to ask of this text is why was Jesus baptized? And there are several good ways to answer that question, but I want to focus on one. In submitting to baptism, Jesus identifies with those he came to save. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to turn. He doesn't need forgiveness. But he identifies with those who do, and it shouldn't surprise us, right? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus comes as a king, yes. Jesus comes as a priest, yes. For sure. But only as one who would suffer and die before rising again. I know as a teacher that sometimes there's some teachers in here I know. And this, this works in every, you know, occupation. But you, you go to these workshops and you have someone who hasn't been in the classroom for like 20 or 30 years trying to tell you what to do in the classroom. And as nice as they are, maybe you get some like cool pins or something out of the whole thing. Right? You're just like, I don't care what you have to say. You have no idea what I go through. You respect them and their position, but you know they don't know what you're going through on a daily basis. It's not like that with Jesus. He emptied himself and became a slave for us. We have a great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way. Every way. Yet without sin. Later on in Mark, in chapter 10, Jesus will refer to his suffering as his baptism. You might remember this story. James and John are asking Jesus, you know, uh, can we sit at your right and left in your glory? And Jesus says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus says to them later, yes, you will indeed drink this cup. And you will experience this baptism. Speaking of the suffering. So when we suffer, we can look to one who has suffered before us. When we are tempted, we can look to Jesus who is tempted in every way as we are. Jesus connects to God's people. He's also connected to God's people in his wilderness temptation. Now, Mark gives us very few details, perhaps because his audience already knew the story, maybe for some other reason. The spirit who descends upon Jesus immediately drives him out into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Certainly this evokes an Exodus experience, where Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. The wilderness was a place of death as far as it goes, but for God's people is often a place of covenant and covenant renewal. 
And what I want to look at in terms of Jesus connecting or identifying with God's people, it's going to seem like a strange connection, but it's with the wild animals. Now, some take this to mean that he was for 40 days in danger from wild animals in the wilderness. I joked with someone that I felt you guys are trying to keep us away by posting pictures of all your snakes on Facebook. Um, Yeah. Wild animals, for sure. Others take it to mean that for 40 days he sort of lived in harmony wild animals, which would be really strange. Um, I don't know what that would look like. But there's another option. One of Nero's favorite ways to torture and execute Christians in this persecution was to cover them with animal skins and release them to the wild animals. And many New Testament scholars suggest that this is what Mark is doing. His mention of Jesus being with the wild animals is a message to the church of Jesus saying, I've been there. I know what you're going through. When you're facing the wild animals of Nero's persecution, know that Jesus has done the same. Jesus continues God's plan. Jesus connects with God's people. The final message of this passage to us, I'm also taking from the wilderness temptation. In the wilderness, Jesus confronts God's opponent. I stretched that a little to, that's the Baptist in me, right? Once I, like, kind of get two things that sound good together, um, I'll spend hours until it all makes sense, so I apologize in advance. But Jesus confronts God's opponent. The spiritual entity who lies behind emperors and rulers and the very worst of human evil is Satan himself. The very one who has opposed God's plan and God's people from the very beginning. And Mark gives us no details, right? There's no conversation We don't know what Satan did or said. We don't know what Jesus did or said, according to Mark. Just that he was tempted by Satan. Here's what we do know, though. Jesus emerges, and if you skip down or just look down in your Bible, a couple of bold titles down to about verse 21, Jesus drives out an impure spirit. That's what my subheading says. Jesus is tempted by Satan. We don't know what happens, but we know that Jesus emerges and he begins healing people and casting out evil spirits, casting out demons. So we don't know the details, but we know this, that Jesus is the victorious one. He's the one who's going to and who has bound the strong man and plundered his house, according to Mark 3. Okay. So Jesus continues God's plan. Jesus connects with God's people. Jesus confronts God's opponent. 
but we're not being persecuted, right? I mean, as far as it goes. Um, If people unfriend you on Facebook and you want to call that persecution, you know, have at it. But what was the thing with persecution? Like, what was the point of it? The point of persecution is to push you to the point of suffering so that you would despair and you would be tempted to decide that the Jesus to whom I swore my allegiance is unable to see me through. The Jesus to whom I swore my loyalty is unable to cause me to continue, to cause me to persevere, to cause me to overcome. And that can come from Nero. But it can also come from in here. I've always been impressed by Paul's list of suffering. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 11 when he, when he is sort of like mock boasting. His suffering includes everything from his imprisonments and his tortures to the dangers he had at sea and from animals. And then he even includes like the, like the stress caused by his concern for the churches. So maybe Nero's not persecuting you. Maybe the government's not trying you to, to force you to deny Jesus. Maybe your circumstances are. And that's what happens when we suffer. So when you are pushed to that point, whether it's from something external from something internal to question the value, the worth, the effectiveness of your your allegiance to God, of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Remember this. That the Jesus to whom You swore your allegiance. The Jesus in whom you have faith. That he continues God's plan. That he connects with you. That there's nothing you're going through that he hasn't experienced in some way. Okay? And that he has ultimately defeated our opponent, our enemy, Satan himself. I think that's how the suffering church would hear these 13 verses in the first century. And although we're 20 centuries removed, I think we can hear them the same way and experience the same strength and encouragement through God's word and the power of his Holy Spirit. So would you pray with me? Father, we're just scratching the surface here of what you want to tell us. So we just ask that as we go on through the week and the weeks to come, that you would bring your word to our minds. Teach us things that we hadn't thought of, that we hadn't heard before. 
Lord, I pray especially for those of us in this building who are suffering. Whether it's, it could be some kind of persecution from those outside of your body. It could be because of the suffering of a loved one or their own. Lord, remind us that your Son has identified with us in such a way that he knows. Whatever it is that we might bring before you that makes us think that you have abandoned us, that you have forgotten about us, remind us that Jesus knows that too. Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who empowers us and enables us to be your disciples to endure this road, this path, this way that leads even for us to the cross. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.